those suffering from chronic stress describe differences between the two identical dolphins. And the more differences they reported, the higher their physiologic evidence of stress. So look at the photograph and see if you see any differences in the identical dolphins. <laughs> okay, we know we're stressed, but it's cool. Um, to receive the PowerPoint, the PDF, the words, the text in it, and a list of links, because we, I won't be able to share all the strategies I suggest today, but I send you the list of links, you see what grade you teach or what, you, what you're administrator of, and you'll find articles for you. Anything in that list of links, you can reproduce and distribute without permission, further permission. All for you. Okay, why know the neuroscience of learning? A couple of reasons. You will see your best strategies represented in the examples that correlate with neuroscience. So you say, I already do that. But what you will find is why your best strategies work. And when you know why something works, you can get more from it. If you know how a motor works, you can get other uses from it. You can expand it. The other, the other opportunity is work smarter, not harder. The suggestions, the correlations you'll hear are do not require more preparation work. We have enough work and not enough prep time. So you'll see how some of the correlations will say, ah, that will save time and make their learning more efficient and joyful and effective. And as a beginning, what if neuroscience says no? This came up last night at dinner. Neuroscience research is very self-contained. I mean, we're in laboratories with very controlled situations. So the analysis of, of good neuroscience or science research is in this controlled situation with this variable, this works, this doesn't. That doesn't correlate with what happens in the real world all the time. So my rule is, if you're doing something that works, even if neuroscience research says, oh no, the research on multiple learning styles was flawed. It doesn't mean not to do it. Do what works for you. I only have two suggestions. If it's very expensive and neuroscience says don't do it, maybe don't do it. Or if they don't like it, if it makes people feel bad, don't do it. Otherwise, don't be too oppressed by the laws of neuroscience. Okay, how does information become knowledge? What happens to it? What's the pathway? And what will we focus on today? Every information that is to become knowledge or wisdom must reach the prefrontal cortex, that high-value real estate behind the forehead. Nothing will become long-term memory if it doesn't eventually get there. But where does information first enter the brain? Very far away from there in the lowest part of the brainstem. All that sensory information, what we hear, what we see, what we feel, what we touch, how we move, comes in through the senses, but then loops down, has to be accepted by a low attention filter. If it is accepted, it still doesn't go right to the prefrontal cortex. There's something along its pathway that could be problematic or helpful, and that's the emotional filter, the amygdala which I have no doubt that you are familiar with. But that's where we're going to focus today. Because when I left my neurology practice to go back to school, get my teaching credential and master's, and then teach for those 10 years, it was because I felt neuroscience had things to offer education, but unless I was a professional teacher, I didn't have the right to tell teachers what to do. And my concern was my patients in my neurology practice were kids who were having over-stress responses in the classroom 
And I felt that many of the responses were not because the referrals said they have ADD or Tourette's syndrome or uh, petty mal epilepsy, blinking and staring. I felt that these were reactions, in many of them, to some type of stress. So I visited classrooms and I began to understand that they were under unusual stress. This was about 15 years ago. So I thought, maybe we can find out what's happening in the classrooms, because they were okay outside of classrooms. And this is where my attention went at that point. Those amygdala, those little almond shapes deep in that limbic system, uh, those on each side of the brain are switching stations. They're little almond-shaped things, but they are going to direct where information goes once it comes in the attention filter and is trying to get to the prefrontal cortex. Depending on the amygdala's metabolic activity, that's where it will go. So if you're looking at a brain scan, this is a diagram of one, and the brain, the amygdala, is not in a high-stress state, you can see the flow of information coming in the attention filter, passing through the amygdala, and going to the prefrontal cortex, where, if things go well, it can become long-term memory. And there's another benefit of having access in and out of the prefrontal cortex, and that's the ability to reflect and choose decisions, because also in that prefrontal cortex are the control centers of executive function self-reflective behaviors, thinking before acting, the ability to choose a decision, not just react. So we need those channels open. In a high-stress state, when we look at the amygdala in the brain of learners, we see it getting more and more active. On a scan, we see more and more metabolic activity until it becomes like a stop sign or a red light. At that point, there is much less effective passing through the amygdala to get to the memory in the prefrontal cortex. In addition, we don't have the nice flow out of that prefrontal cortex, those executive functions, reflecting before acting, considered decision-making, prioritizing. Those don't reach the lower brain. So if the amygdala is reactive, Instead of going high, the information is going to go to the lower reactive brain without long-term memory and with consequences. High stress, sending information to the lower brain will have consequences for learning, and that's what I was seeing in my patients. When the lower reactive brain is in charge because of this high-stress amygdala, we see in animals good survival responses, fight, flight, and freeze, that healthy for the animal in the wild. In the classroom, and what people were sending me patients for, when the amygdala in humans perceives threat and they are stressed, they may not fight, flight, freeze, but they will act out, or freeze, zone out, or flight. So. The behaviors, once the amygdala is so metabolically active, the behaviors, the responses, are not because they're bad or lazy or don't care. It's because their reactive survival brain has taken over. What happens? What are the most common classroom experiences that put the amygdala into this block state? Things that people, even 15 years ago, thought were silly or because they weren't trying hard. But indeed, in humans in a classroom, big amygdala blockers, boredom and frustration. Boredom, because they already have mastery. The class is being taught something. The students will already know it. After a few minutes, their brain gets stressed into the block state. Low personal relevance. This is not a few minutes, but if it's repeated or sustained, we see the amygdala block. Frustration, 
repeated failures to achieve a goal. The goal does not have to be getting a passing grade. The goal might be the ability to do a oral presentation or speak a new language with a partner or in front of the class. It might be someone who all of their grades are A, top grades, but in one subject, mathematics, algebra, language, they have tried, failed, and they hit their frustration point and the amygdala blocks. So you can see a cycle here. If there's sustained boredom or frustration, more and more quickly, the amygdala says, mm -mm, not going to let this happen. Low brain takes over. And for an example, this is on a scan. Uh, this is the eyes are on the top, uh, the prefrontal cortex, the desired destination has the arrows. The difference between these two is the yellow spaces where on what two on each one. These are two sets of middle school students in an fMRI scanner. Everything that happens to them is in sequence. I'll only show you a final average picture. In the first group, A, they are not stressed. They're in the scanner, and they're given something to remember. Group B, they're in the scanner, stressed. Stress doesn't mean hurt. Stress means they see photographs of a grumpy face. That's it. And when you look and average together their scans in the non-stress group, you notice that the amygdala are smaller than in the stress group. In the B group, the activity, the yellow circle there in the amygdala is bigger. But most significantly in this, in the A picture, you see this thick line going from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex and this circle of activity there. That's what we want. We want information to get there, and it becomes, can become memory. And indeed, in group A, we saw the information activate the prefrontal cortex, and they remembered the memory task they were given much better than the group that saw the grumpy face. So this type of research has helped us clarify what are the conditions under which learning can take place for memory, and the reflective brain can moderate the behavioral responses. Now, this seems like a tough situation, but remember that there are two good reasons for it. Animals in the wild, their brains need to keep track of failures. Humans' brains do it, but let's look at an animal. If there's this fox living in the wild, and he has two hills around where he lives, and animals scurry up those hills, and he wants to get the, the little animal to eat for his breakfast. If he goes up one of the hills that's very steep and has much brush and underbrush, he doesn't get it. He, the animal always runs away, and he doesn't get the food. If he goes up the gentle hill, he has a good success rate. So nobody's giving him a report card or telling him to keep track, but his brain, just like human brains, are wired. Keep track of times when your effort fails to give you the result. So good for that fox's brain, because as he keeps failing on that steep hill, the brain stops letting him go there. He stops trying to go up that hill. And that's great for this fox because it survives. It stops putting out energy and effort to a place where it's not going to get the food. So the human brain has that system, doesn't need the grades to tell us, and that you'll hear more and have heard about that fixed mindset. So in humans, we still have the brain is keeping track of its trying something, effort, did it work or not? So our brain is programmed for survival to keep track of when effort toward a goal is successful and when it fails. And it's programmed over time, repeated failure to achieve that goal 
it will resist more and more and more, even when it hears about that opportunity. If, and we get that fixed mindset where no matter what you tell me, I know I cannot speak English. I know I cannot do algebra because I've tried it. So it takes more than just saying, oh, you can do it. Now, there's even another problem in terms of successful learning and the brain. Because the brain is programmed, good thing, for survival. And its survival needs are uniquely profound. It is high demand. There's no other organ in the body that has such high need for glucose, for nutrients, for oxygen. It can't store those things. It needs so much of them that even though it weighs 1.3 kilograms, teeny little thing compared to the body, it uses 20% of the nutrients and the oxygen that come in. So it makes sense for the brain to be governed by the need for the body and the species to survive. That means preserve its energy. It means don't necessarily do every thought and activity that's mentally effortful. There needs to be something to get it to want to do it. So its survival program is saying, um, I think I'll just sit on the couch because I'd rather save my energy. Before I go into these things we can do, I want you to know it's not just students. Teachers also react to stress. Remember, anxiety about change is really just a fear of losing control. <gasps> but Dr. Bond, that's just it. I have no control. None. Not an ounce of it. I've been in elementary education for 23 years, and I've seen open classrooms and back-to-basics, whole language, hooked on phonics, higher standards, no standards. You do your thing, but don't do that thing. Assertive discipline, no discipline, student-based education, outcome-based education, mastery learning, master teachers, merit praise, mentoring programs, beer coaching, I've done it all! Indeed, it would be funny if it wasn't true. <laughs> and for those of you who are new to the profession, just ask someone who's been around all those things were real. So, let's intervene. Let's think of you know, what we see the problem. Yeah, frustration, boredom, um, too much mastery sets the stage for stress. So to avoid that amygdala hitting that stop, Point, we want to keep learning going. Big ways to do it, I will only discuss one now, more later, climate. Do they feel safe? The biggest stressor in animals and humans is perception of threat. Is somebody going to hurt my body, my feelings, my property? So knowing that that is safe in a classroom or learning situation is critical to the amygdala. The second one, skills of their own self-management, mindfulness, visualizations, things that learners can be aware of in, when they're very young. Oh, I'm feeling stressed now. That is a good time for me to think of my happy place. The, the awareness and tools to self-manage and knowing about the brain, when they understand that their brain will do that, and that it's not because they're bad or, or lazy, it's because their brain is protecting them and itself. So understanding when your brain goes into that stress state, you can do something about it, but you're not bad for doing it. And in your handout, you'll have links to articles I've written, simple, where you could just simply tell a learner Hey, in, it, the words are right there. You could read it, but better not to. That there is a place in your brain that when it perceives threat, stress, even boredom or frustration, it will we cause these reactive responses. And here's things we can do about it. The one we'll focus on for the time we have here and this afternoon, instructional strategies for engagement of all students. Because if, if it's the boredom and frustration issue, 
If it's too easy, if they have mastery, we see that that sets the stress button getting hotter and hotter. Yet if it's frustrating and they feel that failed at it before, once again, their stress signals will go up. And in the same classroom, even with 10 students, depending on the topic or how they're feeling that day, some students will understand quickly, some will not understand and be anxious because it's the topic they are anxious about, and some will be just right. So it's the Goldilocks zone that every brain needs. Not too easy, not too hard. Let's look a little deeper into that. Mentioned teaching students about the brain, especially that what they've done in the past, your past behaviors, do not say what your future will be. If people have told you you're lazy or you're inattentive or your parents have told you that some people did not do math, there are certain things that you can change regardless of what has been told to you. You can change your future. You can reprogram their brain. Genius is more than genes and neuroplasticity will allow you to build the brain you want. And the articles uh, are in your handout about that. Okay, so recall that survival program. The brain has limited resources. It's going to resist effort, especially if it doesn't think that the mental effort will achieve the goal. Ah, we do have, the brain does have, a system for intervention on that. To get the brain to resist its programming of, I'm just going to sit here because if it's not for survival, I'm going to keep my resources. It has a pleasure reward system. So that takes us on a little dopamine detour. Dopamine is this neurotransmitter. It's also a brain bathing solution. You think most of us think about it as one of those neurotransmitters that carry information across a synapse from the nerve from one axon to the next dendrite. And when it goes across the synapse, there are these little boats, serotonin, acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and that is true. That dopamine does that. That's not where we're getting the dopamine to pump the brain up. Dopamine, when it's released in large quantities from a place I'll show you, is what is happening in your brain when you feel that intrinsic satisfaction, that, that success feeling. The response to this increased bath of dopamine in all mammals, not necessarily ranked in order, is a cluster such as a sense of pleasure, deep satisfaction, along with increased attention, increased motivation, perseverance, memory, the ability to, the ability to persevere through setbacks and when challenges appear. When dopamine is released, this is great stuff happening. Where does it get released from? Not from the little synapse, but from a, a sac. Deep near the amygdala, there's something called the nucleus accumbens. It's full of this rich dopamine, and on circumstances that I'll show you, it sends it out to bathe the brain through these tubules, especially to the prefrontal cortex. So, what are the things that you already do that work because they send out this little dopamine brain bath? Movement, having choice, interacting with peers, humor, optimism, kindness, gratitude, listening to music, hearing narratives being read to, and the superstars of dopamine release in classroom learning experiences, making predictions and achieving challenges. Whoops, making predictions, achieving challenges. So let's see specifically where that research went to see the power of making predictions and achieving challenges on releasing dopamine and getting the brain to keep doing it. So think about what activity sustains effort, motivation, and perseverance, 
even when the person makes frequent errors and setbacks and the challenges get harder. Yes. And the research on video games. <laughs> Look how old that game is. Uh, um, so keep in mind that I'm not advocating video games for learning, for, you know, it's the only way to learn. They can be useful. Nor am I saying everybody has the same response to playing video games. The research was done on avid video game players, those who really did want to play no matter what, stay up night. The people, the research on dedicated video gamers, what was happening in their brain to make it so compelling? That dopamine boost from making predictions, getting feedback of progress, is in the games that they kept playing. The three components, when it was broken down in the gamers, can be reconstructed in a classroom, in a learning situation, to boot up the same dopamine response. In a gamer, they buy into the goal. They can tell you that if they get to level 10 in this game, they will save the world from devastating destruction from a meteor. And you can say to them, really? And they'll, they say, no, it's a game, but it doesn't matter. The, even though it's fantasy, they want to, their, their goal is to get through level 10 and save the Earth because it's a goal they enjoy. It's fantasy, but you'll see how it works in the classroom. Now, look at the dopamine boosters, the two biggies making predictions and achieving challenges. So let's see in the video game what's happening. Predictions and making, having achievable challenge with frequent feedback. Okay, first the prediction part. When they're playing the video game, they start, everyone starts at level one because the game doesn't know what they, al they already know. They start playing the game and at level one, there's a task they have to master and as they, as soon as they accomplish the task, whatever it is, they go right to level two. They don't have to wait for anybody else in the world to catch up. If they have level two, they go right to level three. They are not at the boredom level because they keep progressing as they show mastery. The same is true for someone at level one who's taking a long time to master the task. The game doesn't say, you are the slowest person ever. So they are at their level of two things, achievable and challenge. Now, predictions. Finally, they're at their level, they, they place right at level three after a few moves. Level three, the brain says, okay, I don't already know this, but I see how, with practice, I could do it. So, I don't already know it, meaning that it's a challenge. Achievable, I see how I could practice and do it. What is the practice? They make a prediction, a choice. They don't know something, maybe they should aim their target or aim their uh, apparatus up. Maybe they should switch the order of a letters in a code. They try it, they make a prediction, they get feedback immediately. Nope, that didn't work. Up to 80% of a video gamer's choices at their level of achievable challenge mastery, up to 80% are incorrect when they start. So how come they don't just say, oh, I'm just stupid and walk away? Because the situation is such that feedback is immediate, there's no embarrassment, there's no negative consequence, and they know they get another chance right away. So with that state of mind, instead of feeling, oh, I'm stupid, they say, okay, I get another chance. What can I learn from my mistake? Maybe I was too high, maybe I was too low. So the feedback is helpful, and they get to make another prediction. So they make a few moves, they make a prediction, it works, here's a nice bath of dopamine, they're ready to keep going. Then they master level three. 
And instead of having to wait until the end of a term or a report, they mastered level three, there's lots of feedback that they've made progress. Welcome to level four. There's new avatars, new music, a new task. Again, if they're going to keep at it, the task has to be recognized as achievable and challenging, but they got that huge charge of the dopamine for the feedback, they achieved another level to their goal. And that feels so good. It lasts minutes, not hours. So those who are addicted to the games, let's say, need to get it again. It goes away. Oh, I felt good. I'm going to do it again. I promise you will not cause learning addiction in class. So feel free to play with your dopamine. So let me give you an experience of your dopamine so you see what I mean. We're going to activate your dopamine resp reward response using the game model, and you'll see the how you'll feel high, you'll feel low, and you'll see what I mean. I'm going to pose a question, show it to you, read it to you, don't start doing anything with it until I then show you a few rules of how you will discuss this question with a group of two to four people. After I explain the rules of discussion, then I'll put the slide back and give you only two minutes to respond, but let me first show you the question. Okay, you are sitting in a raft in a swimming pool of water. There is a rock in the raft with you. If you take the rock, drop it out of your raft, and it sinks to the bottom of the pool, will the water level on the side, will it rise, fall, or stay the same? Now, here's your instructions. You get to predict, uh, and with two choices, like achievable challenge has to be achievable and a challenge. So two choices. Choice increases dopamine. You, can, you get a perfect grade, you get an A, if you simply make a prediction in your little group. I think it's going to go up. You don't have to say why, that's just wonderful that you made a prediction. If you choose, take 10 seconds, because it seems, you know, it may not be a challenge. You can take 10 seconds and say why you think it will go up, down, or stay the same. But you cannot use formulas, specific math terms, science terms, the names of people, Greek people, off the table. So, Great if you want to get, defend it, but in those terms. Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it. So that even becomes a challenge for learners who think they know it because they can plug in a formula. Okay, if you're in a group and you're a science person very familiar with this specific topic, then don't guide or vote or tell your group how to vote. Now, there's a other very important part of this experience that makes it so dopamine-friendly. In the two minutes, students would not have a limit. You can sh you're going to share your prediction, and within the two minutes, come up with a consensus. However you choose the consensus is up to you, but it means that at the end of two minutes, your whole group will stand up together based on your group consensus, not your individual prediction. Okay. You'll have a minute timer, it's two minutes total, there'll be a minute timer after one minute, so you can remember to get your group consensus. There you go. Okay, let's start. Let's start with this. I told you I was this was going to let you experience the dopamine effect. So the first part, was it an enjoyable discussion, considering for some of you it was physics, something if you knew you were going to be asked to discuss physics this morning, you may not have come here. But it was, it was enjoyable, at least it was okay. Now, we'll talk about what happened to your dopamine, why it was okay, after we see some more dopamine for you. 
Okay, you're going to vote by standing up as a group. Nobody should be standing up by themselves. It's your whole group, no matter what. If you disagree with your group, okay. You all stand up, ready for this, and remain standing until I ask you to sit and look around after people stand. Okay, ready. The group consensus that the pool's water level rises. Please stand and look around at the groups. Okay. Excellent. You may sit. Okay. The pool's water level falls. Consensus groups. Don't be shy. The pool's water level stays the same. Wonderful. Look around. Have a seat. Excellent. You are honest. Okay, perfect. Watch what happens next. Watch how cool this is. Watch. Regardless of whether, I know some of you in the group predicted that it would fall, but watch how cool this is. Regardless of whether your prediction was right or wrong, do you want to know why? Yes. Now, isn't that awesome? You didn't like the physics. You got it wrong. And now you want to know what I have to teach you, assuming that's what I was going to teach you. Oh, so when I started figuring this out with the dopamine, I thought, oh, now I know this whole teaching business. I got it. I'm great. Until I took it the next step. You want to know why. Although your prediction, you want to know why. I'll show you why you wanted to know why, and I'll show you what went wrong with me teaching what I did wrong that you won't do wrong. Okay, the reason you were engaged, dopamine. The brain likes its dopamine. It really is, especially prefrontal cortex, knows things that have given it the dopamine bath in the past. So it wants to make predictions, it wants to achieve challenges. So you had that dopamine expectation. The brain knew possibly, it's a prediction, so I get a chance of getting my dopamine. And that's indeed what was set up. By having it be a group consensus, not having to stand up individually, mistake fear, not a problem. I'm standing up with other people. So the discussion was also achievable challenge. Brain knows that's going to get it some dopamine but it can't be the too easy or too hard, or it's frustrating or boring. So you had a choice that I emphasized. It was great, perfect, fine to just make a prediction. Water level up, down, the same. Or if you had that mastery, and that would have been boring, you have the opportunity to choose to explain your prediction. But you would do so in a manner without using words like volume or area or kilograms, so that you, who had some more mastery, got to really think about your understanding and say it in those terms, and other people in the group who didn't speak the language as well or had not taken the science before are hearing what you're saying in simple terms. So it's not, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. So achievable challenge with the group situation your choice of detailing your reason or saying it. Okay, that was what was making it good, your dopamine expectation. So, you want to know why now, and I thought all I had to do with my students then was give a directed lecture or send them to the textbook. They wanted to know. Okay, let's see if your attention and motivation are sustained when I send you to the book to which I sent them. Here's what it said. The water level falls. The rock in the boat displaces an amount of water equal to its weight. At the pool bottom, it displaces water equal to its volume. Because the same volume of water weighs less than the same volume of rock, the rock displaces less water, so the water level falls. Okay, really, do you still care? <laughs> nope, and neither did they. Sending everybody to the same level of lecture or textbook, 
Yeah, there's some of you, you. If you had a background in science and this was familiar, then your brain said, yeah, I'm going to read that again, or, oh, now it's coming back. But it's not for everybody, one size. And that's not just a problem because they won't know it for a test, but indeed, raise your hand if you ever took a physics course. I'll never call on you, but just put your hand if you ever took a course in physics. Hey, lots of us, most of us. I took two in high, what, high school and college, and I'm sure I got A's, not because I'm so smart, but all I did was sit home and memorize. I was going to medical school, so I memorized anything they told me. In those days, if they teach it one way and you practice it that way, they'll test it that way, and you get the A. Did I ever understand it? Not really, because I made up this question and I had to relearn it to prepare this question. So the problem is we never really learned it, even with A on a test. Here's where our intervention needs to be to keep that dopamine achievable challenge going beyond their wanting to know why. Steve Krashen, Stephen Krashen with foreign language learners, described incomprehensible input. If, just like a video game model, if the challenge, either of a lecture or the textbook or the video game, is perceived by the brain as not achievable, I don't see my route to mastery here, the effort, just like the fox going up those hills, is not sustained. The brain said, I'm not going to waste my limited resources on this. There's, it is not possible for me to master that. It's just too hard. And I was interested, but now, not so much. So even if they memorize it for a test, just like with me and those of us who took physics and once knew it for a test, understanding is not constructed, the learning is not transferable. So what is our goal? And active learning is such a powerful or critical ingredient here. If we want to lower the barriers, not the bar, for reaching mastery among individual learners, we need to put them at the control center of how they're going to reach mastery not give them all the same textbook as I did, or the whole class the same lecture. That's not going to be the Goldilocks zone for most students. So flexible opportunities for knowledge building throughout the course of building that mastery for the topic. We can't do it for everything all the time yet, but here's the ideal situation. Similar to the video game model, you progress, you get feedback at your own level. So when we can provide flexible opportunities for individuals to build their knowledge with a variety of types of media through which they learn more about it and pathways. So if there are in a, a situation where there's five levels of textbooks, if there's a, and also there's websites you found for them, and online games, and Khan Academy, flexible groups where some students meet, if they're at this level of understanding. As they're building through their pathway, their understanding of that physics, they're getting feedback along the way and making choices. So someone will see, you label these, it's not a secret, if you have five levels of video links, website links, textbooks, they're labeled one to five. It's not a competition. Each student's on their own pathway, and they can choose where to start. Letting them know that at the end, you will all reach level five mastery, as demonstrated in being able to understand, the, explain the information as it is at level five book or, or description. You will all get there. How you want to get there is your choice. So they can start, um, I like video, I like websites, interactive, I'll go there. I went to level three. Hey, I really understood that. Now I'm going to go to level four reading, or start at level four reading. Oh, did not understand that. I'm going to level two Khan Academy, or flexible group with the teacher. So each student in this ideal situation helped by 
technology and background planning of these units over time, not tomorrow for each lesson, each learner is not only making choices, they're also, without even your input, getting feedback that they're building mastery. Because, oh, I was at level three, now I'm at level four. I improved my understanding. Even little kids in workplace and work uh, stations in a classroom, before they can read, can s at their little workstations, it can say one star or two star. It's up to them if they want to start right with a two star challenge or the one, and then come back. But they pick their pathway, and they get the feedback of recognizing progress en route to the goal. The situation is, takes everything from the video game model and the dopamine response and gives the brain the positive experience to sustain. That's my cue. So what we do, turn that off, okay. Okay, so this afternoon, I will give you very specific examples that I've seen, I've used, others have seen and used to promote the process of achievable challenge and feedback en route to the goal for all learners in an active and interactive situation for their Goldilocks zone. The outcome being that whatever level they're going for, they achieve challenges, some faster than others, some different routes than others. But that system, especially for the fixed mindset, oh, I can't do that, with these opportunities, they will do that. And with the feedback ongoing that, yes, I am making progress, they're going to, like the video game, want to do it more. Because when they get the feedback they've gotten, made progress, their brain says, oh, I like that dopamine, I want to go again, like the video gamer, I want to play again. That's what is going to happen when they, at their individual level, get feedback of incremental progress. So with those experiences, with variable pathways to learning, that growth mindset, the re-evaluation, the re-recognition, my effort and practice do increase my abilities. Then you begin that growth mindset of persevering in the face of difficulty, being open to trying new strategies, taking on challenges. I'll conclude by saying, teaching isn't brain surgery, it's harder. <laughs> and having done both, brain surgery, yeah, that's a big deal, but you're doing the same thing over and over. And before they let you even do more than hold a retractor, it's years of observing. Once you're in there doing it, there's only one thing you're paying attention to, where to cut, where to sew. Not with learners. When you're in a classroom, having done the both, in a classroom, every moment matters for every student, and it changes from moment to moment. How are they feeling? Who are they sitting next to? What happened at lunchtime? Are they hungry? Are we getting to a topic that they feel nervous about? Every moment. The need to, we see how we could, oh, individualize. We see the minute-to-minute -minute decisions and opportunities. We see their faces, their puzzlement or their joy at figuring something out. But here's the problem. I write, there's a, a newspaper in England, The Guardian, and I write for them at times, and they once said to me, we need an article from you about why teachers get the least sleep. I said, well, it's not really neuroscience, but I'll give you an you know, anecdotal experience. You get home from a day of teaching, and you remember the face of someone who got something, or someone who was frustrated, but you couldn't acknowledge them or respond to them at the time because there were other students who were more noisy or more frustrated. So every moment you're getting this 
you're seeing interventions you would like to do, you get to bed at night, and it's like a Rolodex, a repeating loop in the brain. All the things you could have done, you wish you had done, all those faces. And you might say to yourself, I will do better tomorrow. But that's impossible, because tomorrow everything is moment to moment once again. So my non-scientific opinion is, we can't sleep because we see the faces and the minute-to-minute -minute decisions. So I suggest start with your own achievable challenge. Think of the extremes. Perhaps the student or student, even one, who is the most zone out or the most act out. Perhaps it's a student who, when they're absent, things go a little better. That student, see how much you can personalize, individualize, even the choices, the pathways for that. What will happen is, other students in the class will, will notice a change if that student was the most distracting. They will feel some positive energy. They will say, oh, if that person is on track, I can. And you will be able to get your dopamine. If you start in advance, plan for an early success, what will I see if I make that difference, if I make that change? How will I know it's making a difference? Because otherwise, you, it'll be so hard to keep going day after day. You need the feedback that made a difference. When you're starting with something achievable, recognizing the difference you made, that will sustain your dopamine to go to the next step, student, or progress. I'll end with a video. What is achievable challenge in general? You need to know a range. I think this boy is out of his achievable challenge range. There you go. Thank you. Enjoy your rest of your day. I'll see some of you later.